This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 349, November the 8th, 1995. In this session, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, and Paul Biddle and I will discuss the subject of fascism, Nazism, and its importance for us today, why it is a continuing problem. Mark Westerny, by the way, is out of town and so is not with us. Now, a couple of books have been uh, published of late. The most recent by Scott Lively and Kevin Abrams, The Pink Swastika, Homosexuality in the Nazi Party. The uh, book, I think, is very much worth your while, and it can be ordered from uh, Oregon. I'll tell you more about Well, I'll tell you now. From Founders Publishing Corporation. P.O. Box 20307, Kaiser, K-E-I-Z-E-R, Oregon, 97307. The cost is $9.95 and $2 for shipping. The authors were uh, men who fought against uh, gay rights measure in the state and won. In the process, they found they were very much subjected to a great deal of abuse and accused of being Nazis. That interested them enough in the subject to make a study of the Nazi party and of the movement. Now, most people today are really ignorant of National Socialism because we have been subjected to a great deal of propaganda on the subject and a radical revisionism. Since I was a university student in those days and everyone listened in the, among the students to Hitler's speeches by radio translated phrase by phrase into English or idea by idea depending on the uh, particular broadcast. We knew a great deal. Now, one of the things that is forgotten today is that the main support for Hitler was from the universities. University faculties totally approved of his measures. He expressed his heartfelt gratitude to the universities and for their inestimable support which made his movement a success. He planned after the war to build at his birthplace, I believe, uh, a super scientific center to be, in effect, the church, the temple of the new age he was going to usher in. It was to be thoroughly anti-Christian. 
In fact, Hitler went so far as to say on one occasion, if I can locate the quote, that the worst blight for humanity was Christianity. Nothing equaled it in the evil it had done for mankind. But even more, his movement was a pagan movement, and homosexuality and paganism were essentially related in the Nazi movement and in all subsequent developments. For example, someone has written and lively in Abrams' quote uh, as follows. Many aspects of shamanism had homosexual content and many of the gods, spirits, and divinities of the world have been associated with gayness. In Tahiti, there were special divinities for homosexual worship. The ancient Shinto temples of Japan display scenes of sexual ritual orgy similar to the, uh, uh, those of the Bacchanalia of the Romans. The great mother goddess of ancient China, Kuan Yin, was worshipped with several rites that included homosexuality. When the Spanish conquistadors reached Central America and the Yucatan, they found a prevalence of gay priests and sacred statues and stone sculpture depicting the homosexual union as a sacred act. In the Yucatan, the god Shin is said to have established sacred homosexuality in a gay priesthood serving in the temples, just as was true of the temples of ancient Babylon and Samaria, unquote. The Nazi movement was homosexual to the core. Hitler himself had lived for a time in uh, a homosexual housing development. As prime minister, he did everything to cover his tracks in that regard and in other ways but the evidence is still rather compelling. The one man who uh, did not apparently engage in homosexual acts was Goering, but he was a transvestite. So great big Goering would prance around in high heels and uh, party dresses. The whole movement was saturated with this at the top and down to the bottom. Some assume that uh, the execution of Rome and his associates meant that Hitler had cleaned house on the homosexuals. Quite the contrary. Rome and his associates felt they had made Hitler and they could break him and replace him at any time. So he moved with a great deal of rapidity to eliminate them. Now, the interesting thing is that the Nazis very, very uh, clearly raised the charge of homosexuality against their enemies. After all, they had seized the media. They controlled the news and so they could 
do as they pleased in this regard. Now, their anti-Christianity is very much downplayed now, but their hostility to the uh, church was intense. Let me quote from page 138 this brief paragraph. In March of 1935, 700 Protestant priests, he says, but he means pastors, were arrested by the Gestapo in Prussia for issuing condemnations of neo-paganism from the pulpit, and later a similar number of clergy in Württemberg had their teaching credentials stripped for violating the moral instincts of the German race by references to Abraham, Joseph, and David in the course of their teaching. The Nazis confiscated Protestant seminaries in Württemberg and Catholic convents and monasteries in the Rhineland. Unquote. Well, I'm going to stop for the time being and let uh, the other men comment on this subject. The relationship of homosexuality to Nazism was an essential one. It was also a relationship to paganism. And everything was done to conceal the very great evils that were perpetrated. Offenses against children, offenses against uh, youth, and generally their very evil anti-Christian behavior. Douglas, would you like to comment on the subject? Well, there's been numerous historians who uh, claim that history is dead, and of course it's dead if you don't teach it. Um, we've got a culture that we live in now where uh, we've had the, probably the last couple of generations uh, with little or no historical perspective whatsoever. They know nothing of uh, what took place prior to the rise of Hitler. The 1920s, there are many, many parallels between the 1920s and today. Yeah. Uh, homosexuality, uh, the uh, uh, rending of the social fabric, the uh, uh, narcotics uh, use was uh, became widespread, <clears throat> particularly among the uh, the uh, progeny of the nobility <clears throat> in Germany in the 1920s. And uh, opium was uh, widely used. The, uh, uh, the uh, motion pictures, uh, pornography was widespread in uh, uh, the press. Uh, was sympathetic to all of this in the 1920s and uh, the parallels <laughs> are alarmingly similar to what we're seeing today in our own society and uh, for those people who say that history is dead and uh, uh, we better take a close look at the 1920s because we seem to be living uh, that same period right now I read an interesting book several years ago the title was From Caligari to Hitler, 
dealt with that very issue, especially as it relates to the uh, motion picture industry and the Weimar Republic. I can't remember the author, Rush. Maybe you've seen the book. I can't remember his I name. I don't recall. But um, that's very true. In fact, it demonstrates how that decadent democracy really just laid the groundwork for uh, what Hitler was later to do. Well, it was a, it was a uh, <clears throat> witch's brew of nationalism and socialism. Yeah. And uh, we uh, we haven't seen the the uh, the nationalism part of the equation in our culture yet. But when the money runs out and people have their backs against the wall, somebody's going to come along and uh, pose some of the same answers and find. Uh, perhaps the same or different scapegoats for the root of everybody's troubles, and that's where it gets scary. I think we need to remember, too, that uh, traditionally homosexuality has been an elitist uh, practice. The elites in society have always felt that uh, heterosexuality and monogamy were sort of middle class or lower middle class values. This was especially true um, among the uh, the Cambridge group, even over the last 50, 60, or 70 years, certainly as an assault on the family. But um, there was probably something of that in Nazism, I would think, as, as Rush has indicated. I was always struck by Goering's powder blue uniform, a very light powder blue. <laughs> Some relationship. It looks like a woman's suit. <laughs> Look more like a business, a woman's business suit than a man's uniform. Well, at that time that you're speaking of, I, I think of the play that Liza Minnelli was in the movie Cabaret, and that was a time of terrible decadence, and but it was tolerated in many instances uh, by the same people that fell victim to Hitler, the Jewish community was very liberal and tolerant in their acceptance of alternative lifestyles, uh, of the formation of political factions that uh, in years subsequent would just hammer them so badly. I, I think that if you look at some of the tolerance we have today, I go back to the, the parallel uh, to what you were speaking of early, that we have situations of accommodation and tolerance and acceptance uh, that is the precursor of a spiraling down into a position of conflict and contentiousness. Well, the, the problem is, is that the current generation doesn't recognize that this is a repeat performance from the past, and they don't link this cultural behavior with the consequences. That's right. You know, we've been cut off from the uh, historical perspective because they simply don't teach history anymore in the schools. They teach a very selective form of history, and, uh, you know, there's, there's no cause and effect. I just wrote an essay for the report on hatred of history. The reason these people hate history is because history imposes restraints, mm -hmm. and they don't like those restraints. They like to uh, spin political utopias out of the recesses of their own mind, and history shows them that that can't be done. It's always a failure. So they want to wipe the slate clean every generation, and... And that's that's what we've lived to see today. Well, the, the macro history that you <coughs> obtain through formal education of dates, times, treaties, uh, presidents, premiers, what have you, is not so important. I think it's the micro 
history. Mm-hmm. How things affected community, family life during the 20s, the 30s. And if you talk to people who were in Germany during the 30s, I don't know of anyone who was alive during the 20s, but I've spoken to people who were there in the 30s, and their community and family life. It sounds like I'm listening to people talking about our own country at times. Because on a, a family level and a personal level, they were asking many of the questions that we ask today about these influences that are coming to bear on our lives. So I, I think more than anything that you bring up there, Russia, in my own mind, and I'm sure it's different for people with different backgrounds and different ages, but I, I tend to see that we have a lot of corollary experience uh, at the, the micro-history level, the family, the community, the state possibly, uh, that occurred in Europe during those times in the 30s. I'd like to read from the introduction by Scott Lively uh, a very interesting statement. I quote, I came to be interested in this compelling and sobering topic by a route familiar to many in our society today, that of the victim. I did not seek this status, nor did I exploit or claim it. Yet for many months I and others experienced what it was like to be on the receiving end of a full-scale, no-holds-barred liberal establishment assault in a state where the liberal establishment reigned supreme. The occasion of the uproar was a series of initiative campaigns aimed at preventing local and state-level legislation granting minority status based on homosexuality. The details of the initiatives... Uh, and about the Oregon Citizens Alliance, the grassroots organization which sponsored them would fill at least one book by themselves. But the long and short of what led me to this book and its topic was the astonishing tone of the rhetoric which is routinely leveled by post-60s liberals at people who publicly dissent from their canon. Amidst this rhetoric, the favorite names and metaphors were nearly all drawn from Hitler's Germany. Leaders and even petition carriers on our campaigns were characterized as every kind of Nazi, fascist, racist, hate monger, and Aryan supremacist. Bricks wrapped in swastika and blazed paper were hurled through the windows of businesses who had contributed to our campaign. Always the Nazi rhetoric was loudest and most extreme among the homosexual activists and their closest political allies. Governor Barbara Roberts characterized the ballot measure as almost like Nazi Germany. Some of the worst abuse abuse came from homosexualists in the media, and so on and on. Well... Just today, uh, Paul and I heard uh, a portion of the Limbaugh uh, program in which a congressman was uh, portrayed as describing the Republican budget bill as having this goal in mind, the castration of all blacks. Now, 
That kind of rhetoric is so routinely used today that uh, we really have descended uh, far down into the abyss of not only incivility but barbarism. Well, this is a device. It's a device to uh, cut off rational debate. Absolutely. Because out of rational debate comes the truth, just like in a court case. You know, out of rational debate between the two sides, generally the truth emerges. And they don't want a debate on the on the merits of the argument. Uh, they don't want the truth. They want to cut off any debate. They want to shout down the other side, and you see it time and time again. I was watching Firing Line the other night, and Susan Estrich and uh, Governor Moonbeam Brown and uh, a couple of others were on there uh, trying to uh, have a discussion with Thomas Sowell and two or three other people, and Sowell finally got exasperated, and he said to uh, uh, former Governor Brown, he says, "You take the first half of the program and make your make your presentation, and then the rest of us will have our discussion in the latter half of the program." So this same pattern of abuse of rational debate takes place day after day, month after month, year after year, and it's a device. Well, because they don't have the truth on their side, they're forced to <coughs> excuse me resort to ad hominem arguments and. All this impassioned pleading, you know. I wanted to bring up something. Uh, Rush pointed this out in the review, and incidentally, those of you listening to this tape, the report will also have uh, Rush's review of uh, this book, I believe the December issue. But why is it that Hitler is so demonized, and yet people like Stalin and Mao and communism is given such a free ride? You see anti-fascist, anti, especially anti-Nazi movies and books all the time. But for some reason... Stalin and communism get off scot-free. I have my opinions about that. Why, why do you think that is? Well, this is the, the great question that never seems to get answered, is why the academics, uh, the liberal academics, uh, uh, are selective in their criticism. They, they uh, were very laudatory towards Stalin. Uh, I mean... Stalin, by any measure, killed somewhere between 40 and 80 million of his own people. Yes. And uh, Hitler well, couldn't quite measure up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Hitler, uh, not that you know you can uh, play down the number of people that he killed by any means, but uh, yet he is he's used as a demonizing uh, uh, factor in arguments. They're very selective. I was a student at the university when Hitler was in power. And it was very interesting to see the attitude of the faculty. They were schizophrenic on the whole issue. First, never in my life have I encountered hostility to Jews equal to that of the academicians. And there was a reason for it, a very practical one. Uh, Jewish scholars had fled from uh, Nazi Germany and come over here. And very often they were much more qualified for some of the positions mm. 
Then were the American professors. Uh (laughs) And they were bitterly hostile uh, to these Jews coming in and getting the top positions. This was before tenure? Uh, I don't recall. It would be interesting to know. (laughs) (laughs) Those people who championed the free market, yet they don't want to give up tenure. I love it. Well, they resented Mm -hmm. these people. And if you were, as I was, a reader, grading papers, and around faculty members a certain amount of the time, you'd hear their very, very angry comments about the Jews. And uh, at first, some of the professors thought I was Jewish. When they found out I wasn't, they really let their hair down and made all kinds of horrifying comments about the Jews. So uh, that was one reason why uh, they were of a divided mind. The other was they knew that they had to be to retain their credentials once things went beyond a certain point as true blue liberals. They had to be anti-Hitler. And uh, so they were both really anxious to see Hitler destroy the Jews totally And at the same time, they wanted to be liberally respectable. So it was a very, very mixed bag. Isn't it true, Russ, that in the 30s and 40s, it was hard to find an intellectual that uh, wouldn't support uh, Stalin and wasn't... Oh, yes. It was really remarkable. You were uh, treated with contempt if you were at all... Uh, anti-Soviet. Now, what uh, Lively and Abrams say, um, I'd like to quote from again. The pink swastika documents a hidden aspect of German history. The authors contend that homosexualism, elevated to a popular ideology and combined with black occult forces, not only gave birth to Nazi imperialism, but also led to the Holocaust itself. The militarists in Germany were happy with Hitler. His teachings on total war and of a secret Jewish conspiracy against Germany provided a good screen for their own veiled preparations. From its very inception, it was the goal of the Nazi party working as a front for the German military-industrial complex to overthrow the Weimar Republic by whatever means necessary. The pink swastika documents how, from the beginning, the National Socialist Revolution and the Nazi Party were animated and dominated by militaristic homosexuals, pederasts, pornographers, and sadomasochists. Uh, Skipping a bit... The pink swastika documents how the Society for Human Rights, founded by members of the Nazi Party, became the largest homosexual rights organization in Germany, and further how this movement gave birth to the American homosexual rights movement, its influence 
has grown. Unquote. Now that's the situation today. We have a continuation of the tactics of the Nazis as well as the same uh, exaltation of homosexuality that prevailed in the 30s in National Socialist Germany. And an abject tolerance of homosexuality in the church. Yes. Uh, the Nazi church did better. I mean, the German church did better than the American churches are doing now. We have about three and a half minutes. Would anyone like to get a last word in here? These breakdowns that you mentioned, Rush, uh, the the things that we're, we're, we see hints of today in our own country, that... Uh, in Germany during the 30s was principally located in Berlin. I'm aware of that, but was it also located in other parts of Germany? Primarily in the big cities. In the countryside, you still had old-fashioned Lutheran and Catholic piety. And you had a real awareness of what Hitler was on the part of the Catholics because he first began an all-out attack on the Catholic hierarchy. It's interesting, he is spoken of as having been a Catholic. He was bitterly anti-Catholic, anti-Protestant, anti-Christian to the core. But he ordered his associates to maintain a nominal connection with the church just so they could prevail in propaganda matters. I'd like to call your attention to another book on the subject uh, written by Jean Edward Veith, v, -E, uh, v as in Victor, E-I-T-H, Jr., Modern Fascism, Liquidating the Judeo-Christian Worldview. This book was published by Concordia in 1993, but I understand it is still available. This is an important study. There's one uh, gap in its presentation. I'll deal with that subsequently. But uh, perhaps this is a good point to start with. Quoting him, Christianity, insofar as it is based on the Bible, is also intrinsically Hebraic. And it too was the object of fascist contempt. Hitler insisted that Christianity was the severest blow mankind had suffered. St. Paul was a Bolshevik. Christianity allowed slaves to revolt against their masters. Christianity destroyed Rome, and it was all an invention of the Jew. With the appearance of Christianity, wrote Hitler, the first spiritual terror entered into the far freer ancient world. The terrorist and quencher of freedom, Adolf Hitler, here condemns Christianity for terrorizing people spiritually and restricting pagan freedom. Such ghastly irony is one of the implications of the fascist assault upon Judeo-Christian objective morality. Well, as the author goes on to point out, 
fascism has been very, very powerful and determinative in its influence on modern art. It has been influential in uh, literary circles. Its arrogance has been remarkable. He cites, for example, this attitude of uh, a speech given at a Nazi student rally. I quote, I do not want to blaspheme God, but I ask, who is greater, Christ or Hitler? Christ had at the time of his death twelve apostles, who, uh, however, did not even remain true to him. Hitler, however, today has a folk of 70 million behind him. We cannot tolerate that another organization is established alongside of us that has a different spirit than ours. We must crush it. National Socialism in all earnestness says, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Then ours is the kingdom and the power, for we have a strong Wehrmacht and the glory for we are again a respected nation, and may God will in e eternity. Heil Hitler. Well, there's a great deal like this dealing with uh, the influence on postmodernism, on uh, literary figures, on universities, and so on. The whole point is that we have swept under the carpet the fact that fascism has been very closely allied to the academic community, <coughs> to the arts, and to the media. Now they are trying to put the blame for these things on the Christian community. Well, with that comment... Uh, Douglas, would you like to comment on it? Well, it seems like they want to invoke slavery. They want—they uh, seem to desire a totalitarian regime. Uh, I wonder what the, the point of that is. <clears throat> you want to speculate on <clears throat> what? Well, they're closely aligned with a program that we see today. The Nazis were the first modern type environmentalists. They expressed a fanatical concern for the environment. And what we're getting from our American environmentalists is the same thing in the same spirit. They enacted conservation and wilderness protection programs and a great deal more. In fact, it was said by one of their leaders, that humanity has ravaged nature and that human beings are an evolutionary mistake and a cancer on the earth. This scholar rejected uh, mankind to the point of saying that he was more sympathetic with insects. Now, 
a great many philosophers, most notably Heidegger, one of the major figures in existentialism, were Nazis. Yes. And uh, we cannot understand National Socialism apart from the fact that it did appeal to the intellectuals, to the existentialists, it created environmentalism, and a great deal more. How did they make the leap from insects over human beings to the master race? Well, uh, that's a very good point, and they were illogical there, but by human beings they meant those that held to their particular uh, ideology. You have a great many environmentalists who believe, and a couple of books have been written uh, on the subject. Um, I'm trying to think of the titles, but I, uh, they escape me at the Ectopia, I think, is one. The idea being that most of humanity must be dispensed with. We must uh, restore most of the continent to its original uh, ecological condition. And only on the coasts of the Atlantic and the Pacific should a limited number of people be allowed to live. And these will be the guardians of the environment. So really they're saying, you're expendable, but we must be here to protect the earth. I think that was demonstrated well in that book that we reviewed, I think it was about a year ago at this time, Intellectuals and the Masses, mm -hmm. by John Kerry, I believe. Well, he also dealt with that wanting to get rid of uh, the masses and uh, the concern for environment and this perfectly antiseptic society, you know. It's quite prominent. I think another prominent example of this that we're talking about is, and the most prominent one in academia today, is the so-called political correctness movement, which is, of course, fascistic to the core. And um, its leaders like Stanley Fish make no bones about uh, about that point. I mean, they, they have given up on the idea of reasoned academic discourse, which they consider a farce. And they say, when do we want to impose our views on everybody else? And we're quite honest about it. Well, the thing that the the lesson that escapes the uh, the liberals in the academy is that every time this period comes along in history, they suffer too. Yeah. They're ju they're just as much victims of what they create as everybody else. Intellectuals tend to, uh, like all other humans, fall into fads and are susceptible. To especially to intellectual fads. And so when uh, something like this comes along, they tend to be very susceptible to it. But you're right, it eventually destroys them. And why they keep falling into that is just a testimony to the frailty of, of human nature, the sinfulness of human nature. The excerpt that uh, you read, Rush, having to do with uh, a youth rally, uh, I can imagine some... General wanting to become an Oberleutnant in general and get one more star from presenting this in an effective fashion before young people. But it, it brings to mind another thing when I, the people who were living in Germany, they, they told me that they would be aware of these things going on and the rising power of the Nazi party. But they said in their churches, 
there was not strident criticism of the Nazi movement from the pulpit. Even though they were aware, especially as the Nazis became very powerful, that the impact of the Nazi party was not only on Jews, it was on Catholics and on Christians. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, But they said the church never rallied to speak from the pulpit against the government. I, I don't agree with that, Paul. After all, I cited from Lively and Abrams the fact that in two areas alone, Prussia and Württemberg, about 700 pastors from each were imprisoned. That's a considerable number. Now, is this because of what they spoke from the pulpit or because of their actions? Well, I wouldn't know in every case, but uh, the mere fact that they were teaching from the Old Testament was enough to imprison them. So uh, there was a great deal of punishment of Christians. Oh, yes, I, I don't dispute that. My, my point is that there was not an activism from the pulpit so much as there might have been actions within the Christian church. Well, yeah, that is possibly true. It was a state church after all. And therefore, they were tightly controlled. And it was easy to uh, control the church from within because uh, in uh, state churches, the church officers are state officials very mm -hmm. commonly. That, by the way, is a very good argument against yeah. state churches. <clears throat> and, of course, much of Lutheranism at the time has been justly criticized. Certainly not all Lutherans, thank God, but much Lutheranism at the time did capitulate to, uh, to Hitler. No question mm -hmm. about it. Well, one of the things they did, Paul, was to bypass the elderly or the parents. They figured we can uh, make them go along with us but they're not important. They're going to be dead in so many years. We're going to get the youth. And you heard, of course, of the famous Horst Vessel song, which was the hymn of the youth groups. And uh, this is uh, what it said in part. We are the happy Hitler youth. We have no need of Christian virtue. For Adolf Hitler is our intercessor and our redeemer. No priest, no evil one can keep us from feeling like Hitler's children. Not Christ do we follow, but Horst Vessel. Away with incense and holy water pots. Singing we follow Hitler's banners. Only then are we worthy of our ancestors. I am no Christian and no Catholic. I go with the essay through thick and thin. The church can be stolen from me for all I care. The swastika makes me happy here on earth. Him will I follow in marching step. Walder von Schirach, take me along. Now, uh, this was an open disavowal of Christianity by the youth of the country. The parents did not dare say anything because there were repri reprisals against them. So the idea that they were merrily uh, 
go-along people is not altogether true. A lot of them paid a price. And uh, the clergy certainly did. In some instances, everyone in some groups, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, wound up in the slave labor camps. So there was a battle. It's, I think, been a bit malicious to say that uh, there was a radical surrender by the German people. They were helpless, but many of them paid a price all the same with their opposition. I think that quotation demonstrates, too, that what we're dealing with here is a rival religion as is modern liberalism, which is fascist to the core. And as Van Til pointed out, and as you have, Rush, for so many years, it's always fundamentally a battle of religion and religious presuppositions. We can't say it's just differing political ideologies. And that's what we're fighting today. We're fighting an intensely religious battle. I think that fits in with my concept is that you had people in the pulpit in Germany who would not speak out from the pulpit, but that there were people within the Christian community who were very much opposed to the Nazi movement. And I, I wonder, you know, how if if we have a similar condition now where in the pulpit no one feels you should criticize the improprieties of government, but that the people within the churches are like the Christians in Germany, standing up and being counted. What is the, the outcome? What, what does it portend for us? I would say that's very true. I would say that on the whole, oftentimes it's the lay people that are stronger in their convictions than many of the ministers. Of course, there are notable and gratifying exceptions to that, thank God, but uh, on the whole, lay people today often uh, see the issues more clearly than the ministers uh, in the pulpits, and it's very sad. One of the things we need to remember, which... Uh, Leith points out is that we have an aspect of the Nazi program as founded here by Margaret Sanger the founder of Planned Parenthood and she was a militant Nazi very very outspoken racist to the core racist to the core And yet, we're not told that today. And it doesn't make any difference to the federal government. They have made Planned Parenthood almost a part of the state apparatus with their support of it. So we're surrounded by groups that are in full accord with National Socialism on one issue after another, are militantly anti-Christian, and are determined to alter the country. What we see then is a great facade. All of these attacks on Nazism and yet individuals and groups uh, adopting Nazi tactics. It's just a huge lie is really what it is and it should be exposed. I I keep harkening back to the fact that you have have man's law and you have God's law. And most nations cleave to man's law and Definitely. walk away from God's law. You today, when we heard uh, the Vice President Gore on on the radio saying, uh, due to the type of legislation and the content of it regarding environmental protections, even more people will die. Yeah. 
because I, of the uh, legislation that conservatives have introduced oh. in Congress. The, the first premise wow. is that even more. Yeah. That means that after 30 years of Democratic Congresses, we yeah. are losing people out there. It's a concession, at least. Well, the tactics being used by many of those people in Congress are just nothing but sheer lies, and that has been exposed, but uh, they're more interested in rhetoric than they are the truth. Scaring uh, the elderly and scaring uh, public school parents, that's, that's their name of the game. Political methods don't change over time. That's really. exactly right. Well, one of the things that is important to us today is to recognize, too, as Beath points out, that behind all this was a chain of thinking that was scientific in origin. It began with Darwinism, and Darwinism implicitly, if not explicitly, depreciates man. Man is a product of chance variations and accidents biologically. And uh, such a creature has no value per se. He is expendable. I was interested some years ago in uh, something that an English physicist wrote and he said we all looked forward to the abolition of Christianity from the public scene and we felt that when men no longer believe in a life after death they will prize this life more and the world will become a caring place because nobody will want to destroy life when it is so precious and there's no life beyond the grave and all you have is what you have here. And he said, but to our dismay, what we are seeing is that with the abolition of Christianity, life has become worthless. And there is a radical destruction of the quality of life and of life itself because we have rendered it meaningless and therefore contemptible. There's no basis for valuing life apart from transcendent belief like Christianity. I think another one we need to mention too, apart from, in addition to Darwin, Rush, is uh, the effect Nietzsche's thought had on oh, Hitler. Yes. Uh, he was uh, Nietzschean, there's no question about that. Shot through with uh, Nietzschean views and this whole idea of the Superman and the Overman and all that sort of thing was prominent Hitlerian thought and Nazi thought in general. <coughs> he uh, makes clear that Nietzsche is one of the fathers of fascism. Of course, some scholars have uh, become quite uh, vehement in denying that <laughs> since they are very partial to what Nietzsche represents. But Pete uh, comments, as Nolte says, Nietzsche was the first to give voice to that spiritual focal point toward which all fascism must gravitate, the assault on practical and theoretical transcendence for the sake of a more beautiful life. Nietzsche turned romanticism in a fascist direction. Yes. 
I just finished reading uh, this past year Beyond Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, and I think people need to read that to recognize why Nazism was what it really was. You really see the seeds of it right there, even in the titles like that, Beyond Good and Evil. That the old Christian val you know, quote values Nietzsche would say are gone. We have to create our own, and of course that's exactly what Hitler did. One uh, prominent Nazi said that whoever says Heil Hitler is at the same time praising and exalting Nietzsche. Yes. They knew uh, who Nietzsche was and their relationship to him. It's really interesting, just like Hitler and Mein Kampf, when you read Nietzsche's writings, um, he does it's no holds barred. He's just very plain in what he believes. Well, one of the statements, for example, by Beef, Nietzsche's ethic of cruelty became the rationale for all the Nazi atrocities. Yes, that's exactly right. You see that in Nietzsche's writings, that uh, he's always emphasizing rigor and that men need to suffer if they're going to go through things. And, of course, Nietzsche had nothing but contempt for the masses, uh, as, of course, yes. uh, Hitler did. Hitler would make jokes beforehand and say, you know, I have to go talk to these people, and he would whip them up into a, a furor and a, that sort of thing, and uh, a sort of thinking was really prominent. He got it from, from Nietzsche, no question about it. Don't, don't political organizations and governments always try to vouch for their own agendas through the uh, authority and canon of intellectuals? Uh, whether it be a Nietzsche or whether it be anyone, uh, there's something that yes. uh, we are supposed to have absolute trust in people who are intellectuals or academics or what have you. And I just see so many governments that hang themselves onto some intellectual concept that most people don't comprehend or understand the, the unfolding of it. Uh, well, uh, on the other hand, there's a cause and effect relationship. One uh, scholar observed many, many years ago that Immanuel Kant was a very methodical uh, professor. <coughs> People could set their clock by him as he took his walk or went to uh, the university to lecture. He was extremely regimented in everything. And he seemed to be a totally insignificant person. And yet, as the statement was, in a generation or two, armies were marching to his tune. And the same is true of Nietzsche. Right. And armies all over the world were marching to his tune. And Karl Marx. <clears throat> That's exactly right. We fail to realize how not only do ideas have consequences, but ideas are interlaced with life. When the Civil War was fought, The German generals had their men here soon after going over the battlefields, studying the military tactics, which they then applied in the war against France and in the 
in World War I and II, Modern Total Warfare. Beeth quotes Hitler uh, to this effect, something I had not heard since the 30s. I quote, Conscience is a Jewish invention. Oh, dear. That is a remarkable statement. Yes. Mm. We have Russian troops training today at Fort Raleigh, Kansas, ready to intervene in Bosnia. Well, we live in a confused world, and I think not many are as confused as we are. We are so foolish where our own advantages are concerned. To quote another sentence from the Italian and French fascism always stressed sexual freedom. And of course we've picked that up also. Yes. I think we need to recognize the malevolence of the enemy. I think too many Christians are soft toward uh, the enemy and too tolerant. But Christianity does not support that sort of tolerance. It supports a godly tolerance. But I don't think we recognize who the enemy really is, and that's why so many Christians refuse to take a stand, a relentless stand today. And that must stop. It must stop. Here's another passage from V, which is revelatory. Hospital chaplains were especially active in defending their flocks, that is, against euthanasia. One of them, Pastor Karl Gerhard Braun, wrote a powerful document addressed to Hitler himself, which refuted the moral arguments for euthanasia and forcibly attacked medicalized killing. Whom, if not the helpless, he wrote, should the law protect. Pastor Braun was arrested by the Gestapo and imprisoned, but his paper was widely circled and had its effect. Uh, then uh, there was a Catholic bishop in Munster who was a uh, German count as well, von Galen, who attacked the euthanasia program. And I recall vividly the uh, attacks on him at the time. Well, our time is over. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.